Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. No one left behind. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives. Here's your host, General David Grange. Good evening and welcome to Veterans Radio Hour. This is show number three of series 2.0. Before we start tonight's topic, I want to say happy Thanksgiving to all the GIs out there around the world and our veterans on Thanksgiving. Because of where our troops are located, on bases, on posts, aboard ships, and forward operating bases, on the front line, in training areas, on remote outposts, sometimes working in ones or a pair of twos. Uh, Some of them already had Thanksgiving or get about ready to sit down for Thanksgiving. It may be one of those situations where the GAs aren't in either of those places, but they're, well, I'm dating myself a little bit, but eating out of a can of turkey loaf and peaches and making the best they can out of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's a big deal to GI and their families. Many of you remember uh, going to the the post mess hall and uh, officers serving all the troops in dress blues and uh, celebrating Thanksgiving, probably the biggest event, social event in the military besides dining ins, dining outs, Veterans Day and Memorial Day. So again, happy Thanksgiving to all the troops out there. Tonight's topic is America's Force Projection Military. Should we stay at home or forward deployed? And we're going to tie into that the theme of show number one, 9-11 plus 20 years later. So this is an important topic because it drives our purpose as GIs. It drives our capabilities, our readiness, our training requirements, and expectations not only of those we serve, which is the American people and the Constitution of the United States of America, but also expectations from our allies and the deals we've made with those that we defend abroad. It directly affects these allies. It it defends our and affects our place in the world as a superpower and justifies taskings to our services, our units, and what we represent as the American GI. And that commitment when our civilian leadership is at the negotiation table. Our strength, our protection of the American homeland at home or from abroad is a topic that is always at debate since the beginning of the United States of America. Do we fight in our homeland? on the seas, in the air, in space, or on foreign soil? Why go over there on foreign soil? Why not stay at home? Can we be isolationists? Should we show presence abroad beyond strike missions? Are we the world's police force? Are we responsible for humanitarian disasters? 
that we expected to lead the way abroad? Are there tangible reasons only, like kill or capture those that harmed us? Example, 9-11. Or going after oil, rare earth elements, airfields for positional advantage. Or are there intangible reasons like oppressed the bear, free the oppressed? Not letting our allies down or never leaving a fallen comrade. What makes it just? Do we stay for the long haul like we did in Germany, Japan, or South Korea? What about Vietnam, Panama, Iraq, or Afghanistan, to name a few? What is the end state? How much blood, how much money, or how many resources do we commit? Do we understand the consequences of leaving too quickly and the void left for bad people to take advantage and do bad things? Are the second and third order effects larger than, more disastrous than, the current commitment? And finally, do we follow our own doctrine? As an example, the principles of dime, diplomacy, information, military, economics. Are those in synchronization when we're at war or in conflict? Are we properly trained in things like other than war, unconventional warfare, forward internal defense, coin, which means counterinsurgency, of course, And are we properly trained, are we properly organized, and properly led and directed by the appropriate government agency? You know what I mean by that? Who should lead on certain operations? Department of Defense? Department of State? Who? And, of course, you should always get the opinion of Corporal Hardrock. Was there a recent FUBAR? And the GIs on the phone tonight know what FUBAR means. Effed up beyond recognition. Our guests will discuss these points on tonight's show. So at this time, we're going to break for a commercial. We'll be right back with you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life, like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new, and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985. 
serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Good evening. Tonight we have two guests that are friends of mine for a long time. We haven't served together uh, in a number of years, but uh, we've known each other for decades. And uh, I'd like to welcome to the program tonight Navy Rear Admiral retired Pat Hall and Army Colonel retired Morris Goins. Pat, would you please give a bit of background? Because, of course, there's been a lot of time since we had a chance to uh, work together. And just give us, uh, you know, where you came from, uh, your source of commissioning, perhaps, uh, assignments in the Navy, and uh, your process to retirement. Thank you. You bet. Uh, thanks, Roger Dowd. Thank you, General Grange, uh, for having me on the uh, show tonight. I uh, really love the uh, podcast. and You've covered uh, a lot of topics in the intro there, so this is going to be really interesting. Um, I come from a background. I uh, went to the University of Texas, and uh, I, uh, my background was a, a young Navy fighter pilot uh, who later in my career, after flying the F-14 and the F-18, was uh, given the opportunity to command a, a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier and then go on to be a strike group commander. Uh, it was my last position uh, before transitioning to the civilian side. And uh, teaching uh, leadership and uh, advising uh, senior leaders in a uh, major oil and gas company. So uh, really an interesting career. But, you know, relevant to what we're, what we're probably going to talk about today is I did spend some time in Afghanistan during the uh, counter-IED mission uh, when I was a 06 and uh, also spent some time in Pakistan supporting the humanitarian relief effort. Uh, so uh, not your normal uh, – traditional uh, Navy career, but uh, that's uh, that's me in a nutshell, and I uh, look forward to the questions you may have, uh, Ranger Doug. Thanks, Pat. Morris, how about you? Ranger Doug, good to hear your voice. General Grange, good to hear yours. So we, we, we've crossed paths years ago. But just as a real quick introduction, originally from Southern Pines, North Carolina, um, I'm of the age where my dad and uncles were Vietnam and, and Korea veterans. I always wanted to be in the Army as I lived uh, just off the installation at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I initially wanted to be a, a pilot, as my uncles were, uh, and then went to a couple of camps at Fort Bragg and said, no, infantry is the way to go. So I did. I went through ROTC at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke, uh, became an infantry officer, the normal platoon leaders in Korea, the 2nd of the 503rd, uh, commanded uh, several companies, a mechanized company in Germany, was in the Old Guard there in Washington, D.C., uh, from there, then I became a battalion commander of a combined arms battalion at 1st Cavalry Division at Fort Hood. Went to uh, Iraq as a battalion commander. I went to Iraq as a brigade S3 on the initial push-in, and then went back as an individual augmentee from the Pentagon. Selected to command an airborne brigade out of Alaska. Uh, from there, we deployed from Alaska to uh, Afghanistan, where we spent several months there. Came back... Um, Couple another stint back in the Pentagon on the uh, Army staff as the Global Force Management guy. Uh, from there, retired uh, a few years after that. Started several businesses, uh, some, some real estate stuff, some butane pumping stuff. I've um, been doing some consulting work and just enjoying life now. So uh, that's a combination of, of thirty plus years over. That's great, well, guys. Uh, we face a, a lot of theory and problem as we recover from our ops in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the real issue we're, we're in right now is this great power competition. So I think that the 
idea of basing at home and, and waiting for threats abroad to react to as opposed to basing abroad is, is entirely opportune for tonight's discussion. And I would uh, like to ask uh, Pat first, is there anything that you can think of in the last 20 years that, that uh, helps you and, and think about the Navy too? be prepared for great power competition at great distances. Is anything we've done, even though we may feel that the operation didn't end the way we did, how has it helped us build towards an ability to make that critical decision, whether to operate from home or to operate abroad and perhaps base abroad in, in new places? Yeah, Ranger Doug, that's a great question, uh, considering uh, the Navy and where it's really of value. Uh, you know, it's it's really hard to see how the Navy can uh, – bear uh, any significance uh, as a home guard. We've got a U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, you know, we are, we are, for all extensive purposes, masters of the sea. And uh, really, our best uh, advantage is that forward uh, deployment, if you will. So being able to go where anywhere we can uh, and project power is what we're all about. But you know, you bring up a good point that that's not something we've done for the last uh, 20 years. Uh, unfortunately, we've done a lot of, um, you know, tactical level events in support of all our sailors, soldiers, you know, Marines in both Af Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. And so that has been, uh, we have adapted to that mission. And now you look at, you know, our, our real peer competitor now. Uh, it's a very different fight than what we've trained for in the past. So if it's a home or abroad, uh, you know, for for a, for a Navy, it, it's certainly abroad for us. Sure. And as a force in being capable of reacting from anywhere in the world, especially to keep the choke points open, the Navy always has had that function. But now we see that uh, the PRC, the People's Republic of China, for example, has uh, been able to produce a, a number of combatant ships that is roughly equal to ours. And they also have begun to reinforce some of the places that we've taken over uh, in World War II. We, we took them over during the war and then gave them back, places like Tarawa. Uh, and uh, Vanuatu, our great anchorage there, Espiritu Santo. Uh, they're making inroads politically and, and militarily in a lot of these places. Meanwhile, for the Army, basic is another concern because, of course, you can't base on a Navy ship. But we've got to think about where do we place units so that we can establish a position of advantage on a potential enemy, our greatest threats right now, most likely for great power competition being from uh, the Russians and, and the Chinese. So, Morris, uh, how about some thoughts on things that we face as challenges or things that may have helped the Army perhaps become more expeditionary from its last 20 years and perhaps then basing in places that we haven't thought of before? As I understand it now, and I've been monitoring it for quite some time, we're basing in new places in Europe specifically to provide uh, kind of a fulcrum against uh, Russian advances. Over. Well, thanks, Ranger Doug. Um, so to your point, and as General Green's uh, lead-in, you know, when you talk about force projection, you know, deployments to Iraq, deployments to Afghanistan has allowed the U.S. military, at least its Army specifically, the capability to move massive amounts of equipment from home uh, to whatever port is required. Um, we also obviously have the capability to do partnerships um, with a multitude of agencies, a multitude of countries, showing our commitment, again, back to General Gaines' opening comments, that we have the capability to arrive, we have the capability to stay, <clears throat> and we are committed with the peace treaties, the accords, and the agreements that we've made 
And I think with the uh, Iraq and or Afghanistan um, conflicts, people see that the U.S. has that capability. Um, we, we've had it, we'll always have it, and, 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 and per uh, Brother Pat's comment, you know, we've always had the capability to provide humanitarian assistance regardless of where it is. So, you know, I believe that we still have and need to be a force projection um, platform for America and the globe because obviously through national disasters, people need help. Regardless of they just a person needs help, they need water, they need you know food in a time of of, of crisis. That we we should be able to do that. And if it's time to meet our competitors on the battlefield, then we need to show up prepared to do that as well. And real quickly, um, I think to Brother Pat's point uh, initially was you know as we fought initially uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, we were doing low intensity conflict um, training at our national training centers. Um, and so we started spending an enormous amount of time focusing on that type of fight. And unfortunately, maybe as we face uh, competitors or opponents or adversaries such as Russia or China, we may need to make sure that we're addressing high-intensity conflicts um, and movement movement of contact, those type of engagements as we move forward and making sure that we have the capability to fight both fights and in when needed, we have the ability to adjust, to focus on low intensity, but also never leaving or forsaking the high-intensity conflicts as well. Over. That's a great summary. So thinking about this, when we talk basic and we think about uh, often the, the military principle of mass, it seems to me that the environment we find ourselves in right now with this thing we call anti-access area denial, or A2AD, is very perplexing, even for the Navy, because even if you were to concentrate ships at, at Norfolk or at Bremerton, uh, San Diego, uh, these are now within range of what we believe are new Russian and Chinese long-range missiles that may not be nuclear missiles, but could be and have multiple warheads that could target uh, ships at sea or at anchorage. So, uh, and that presents certain problems for the Army. If the Army were called to deliver major forces to the Pacific or to Europe, um, we have to be thinking about how we'll get them there. I know when I was a youngster, General Shinseki was working on something he called, I think it was the aerocraft. It was like a great big rigid blimp that could carry hundreds of soldiers and equipment uh, faster than ships but low to the ground so that it might uh, be more survival. I don't win anywhere. But I think in, in terms of the Army, we need to think about basing in new places, perhaps places we've been before, to have forces in the region that can operate and move and their, their maneuver doesn't bring them, their maneuver into theater, because we've got to think about RSOI now, uh, reception, staging, onward movement, and integration, uh, and travel from the United States is actually part of operational maneuver, because the forces have to come from someplace, and through deception, they have to get into position where they can actually maneuver against an enemy in Europe or in, in Asia. So, Pat, uh, given the area, uh, the anti-access area denial, the A2AD problems that we see from not only their their anti-aircraft missiles, but they have anti-ship uh, missiles and other tools. There's now a Russian torpedo, apparently a nuclear one, that can move at some hundreds of miles an hour going all the way across the ocean and actually uh, explode in a harbor, say, at, at Norfolk. How do we cope with that to be able to achieve not only the ability to deploy and fight and to mass when we need to, but do we need to think about perhaps basing widely spread and only concentrating when necessary, or is concentration and mass now going to be something different where you deliver effects as compared to platforms? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, what, it's a question that we've been dealing with for a, a number of decades. Uh, you know, all of us, including how you just so eloquently put it, have seen this as being the greatest challenge uh, with the new technology. But as, but as you know, but as you know, and Morris knows, uh, you know, every time you develop a new technology, there's there's given enough time. There's a there's a counter to that technology, and so it's a, it's something we've dealt with, we've looked at, we continue to look at, and uh, you know. Much of it we can't discuss here, uh, I, but I, I really – the movement of troops is going to be the biggest challenge I see. Uh, the access part, you know, the nice thing about an aircraft carrier is it, uh, it moves. So, you know, there's a belief that the Chinese have the targeting solution down for aircraft carriers, but I uh, I, I know that's that may be – just temporary and 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 won't and won't last for the entire conflict because it continues to move. Now our fixed bases—that's a challenge. I mean, those are always subject to uh, attack. And uh, do we have the adequate defenses, which the Navy has been working on uh, quite a bit? So, you know, this is not to say that we're fully prepared because at the end of the day, quantity matters. Uh, we have, in my opinion, we have quality uh, in our training and in our systems. But quantity is one of those things that uh, we have really got to question strongly. Uh, do we have the quantity of weapons that we need to counter a, a high-end uh, conflict uh, like Marx was talking about? Uh, and, you know, I've, I've seen this respond when needed. Uh, this would be one of those cases where it would certainly be a need. Uh, I don't think we've got the resources to uh, to have that sustained fight. And, you know, then we get into that whole discussion, do we have the pol- political will to get into that sustained fight? Uh, that's another great question. But but it is something we've, we've focused on because that's the, the space we live in. And, uh, you know, it's, we'd like to say we we have the luxury of, of staying outside of those uh, threat rings, but in this case, as you pointed out, these weapons, uh, there are no, you know, staying, there is no staying outside the threat rings with uh, many, many of these weapons now. There are, as you know, there are other counters to them, uh, things that aren't as conventional as we uh, think uh, or used to think, which I think is really fascinating, and uh, it's it's where we're we're going to win this fight. Uh, if we should ever have to get there. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. 
like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. And here's your host. And Morris, uh, in regard to the Army, it seems to me the Army has a particular problem. The Navy and the Marines are always at sea, and they're always practicing landings from afloat. But the Army hasn't done that in a long time. The Army almost seems to believe that if it were to go to war in a, in a maritime environment or make the transit across the sea, that somehow it would be allowed to arrive and then basically conduct that, uh, that RSOI that I mentioned a while ago and move forward into a fight. But, I mean, it, we're looking right now at a conflict that might involve us in some way reacting to uh, a Chinese maneuver against Taiwan. Um, how, would we, how would we look at, at some kind of uh, overseas basing that might put us in their perspective for either that fight or one in, in Europe? And if we were to base at home, how would we get our forces in theater, do you think? Well, I'd probably take the, the easiest of the two questions there, and that's part one. The first part is when you start saying, how do I handle something in Taiwan, um, you know, as, as Brother Pat alluded to, you know, we may not, um, based on the ranges and the speed of where some of these weapon systems fly now, we may not have time on our side. So that being said, you know, forward basing, for staging areas, if that's nothing more than a constant presence as we now do in Korea, you know, we rotate brigades in and out of Korea. They're no longer, you know, stationed there, but we still have that capability there. If we do something along the lines with the, the new agreement between the UK, Australia, and the US, um, we stage a force out of Australia as an example. And then you still have the airborne capability. You know, there's still brigades inside of the U.S. Army that has that capability to drop in from the sky and seize anything and, and bring whatever we need in from that, that, that opportunity. Um, and as you were talking with Brother Pat, I thought, you know, if the analogy came to me is if we are concerned about the ranges of the weapon systems, then you do as a boxer does. You sneak in close and you get close and make it a close-in fight. So you stage through your allies, um, through your partners as many um, small bases, small compounds as you can, and then your, the distance that you need to close is much less. That's one. So the answer to your second question is, you know, we do, the Army does have pre-positioned equipment, um, and so maybe we would have to land in one friendly nation and do a long, long um, over overground movement to get to, uh, to the fight if that's what's required. I don't know, personally, if we spent much time thinking about um, I know the armor we probably have. I'm just not aware of it anymore. But, um, you know, how do we fight a major land conflict? Um, and it being a contested entry would be, you know, something I don't know if we've even looked at as far as our national training centers or, um, you know, maybe war games with, you know, conventional forces um, on a day-to-day -day basis. It would be a challenge. It really would be getting a force from home. But as far as 
forward basing, I think we have the capability to do that with the organic uh, assets that we currently have over. Doug, let me ask both Pat and Morris two quick questions each. First of all, for Pat, you know, when you're in command staff college, war college, other learning institutions of the U.S. military, there's always uh, studies on lines of communication, which really mean, in many ways, sea lines. I guess it could also be in the air and the ground as well. Uh, Pat just talked about a ground example. I actually think Bosnia, Kosovo, that was a good example, though it was a peace support operation. It was long haul. They did it by ship through Greece. They did it by land from Germany down. Different size rail rail gauge lines, uh, all, all kinds of issues. Uh, and that wasn't in a combat situation. That was just getting to a place to do peace support operations. So it's definitely something that uh, is difficult, and I can think of some scenarios in the future that that could be the case, i.e., India, Pakistan. Uh, let's. Uh, but the question for Pat. Uh, let's talk about LOCs in the case of what's really you're hearing lately, and it really was both both presidents, recent presidents, uh, President Trump and President Biden, on secure supply lines. Which to do secure supply lines, you have an economic. In other words, commercial businesses have to be involved, actually, as well as the military. It gets back to DIME again, D-I-M-E. And to do secure supply lines, as an example, rare earth elements, which we need for not only cell phones, computers, magnet, magnets for drones, F-35 fighters, all kinds of things, semiconductors. If you look at pharmaceuticals, it's the rare materials and also uh, APIs, you know, the actual pharmaceutical ingredient, where we rely on those things 80% on the pharmaceuticals and other places besides their own country. So the old doctrine on LOCs, on securing supply lines for the United States of America so we can sustain self-sufficiency and not be in a situation like Japan was in, when China retaliated over issues in the South China Sea with rare earth elements. So do you, how do you feel about our current capability to secure these supply lines? And I don't just mean on a tactical level, but our ability to work as a team between, for instance, the military and the economic industrial base and access to raw materials. A great, great, great question. You know, I, I was listening as I was listening to you talk about this. I was thinking about uh, Admiral Nimitz and his uh, his saying uh, during World War II about tactics being for amateurs and logistics being for professionals. Uh, and it's no truer, you know, now than it was then. Uh, it is, it is certainly any force's Achilles heel, if you will, and. Uh, you know, to ask, are we are we are we secure when it comes to that? There's no way, no way, and the resources required to accomplish that are just not there right now. And, and I was one of those uh, vessels, one of those supply vessels for part, a portion of my career prior to going to the aircraft carrier. I had a supply ship and understood the value of having a friendly port to go into to then pick up supplies and uh, 
fuel, uh, then to shuttle it back out into the um, Arabian Gulf to uh, support the uh, John F. Kennedy uh, strike group at the time. Uh, so understand that. And, you know, are we, you know, the real question, I would think today, Vice, when we all served, is um, are there alternatives to those supply lines? And I've seen us in the Navy, I've seen us utilize those supply lines uh, quite a bit. And, and, and I'm talking the Amazons and Walmarts and uh, those uh, those industries out there that, that understand this problem pretty well. And uh, we, we sometimes utilize them, and many times in peacetime we do. And can we count them in wartime? And I, I think the answer is uh, yes, we can. Uh, but that is a different way of thinking and a different way of uh, controlling those supply lines. The resourcing issue and the uh, rare metals that you talk about and all the other uh, things that are necessary for modern life now, big, big concern. Uh, I've done a lot of traveling here in the last five or six years in Africa. And uh, every time I go there, I see a tremendous Chinese presence. And for many of the um, people there, it's it's always the question, once they realize you're an American, it's, uh, you know, the Chinese are here in quite large numbers. Why aren't you here? And, uh, and you know, it's a, it's a question that I, I, I struggle to sometimes answer. Uh, we're not as aggressive as China when it comes to making relationships in these uh, areas where these resources come from. So it, 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 is, a, it is a challenge. Uh, and But I think the answers are out there. I, I think the answers may be different than what, we would have thought of when we were in, and so I think that's something we'll, we'd have to, we'll have to explore and exploit for that matter. Yeah, I appreciate your response. And I think that we, we may have to do a show on this alone because if you think it just, just about, just the, only about who the client is. So the client for a commercial entity is the, the board of directors, the shareholders, the shareholder price, revenue and cost savings from cheap labor or access because of restrictions in our country, for instance, on mining, whatever the case may be. The client for the military is the American people, Constitution. So what's they're not in synchronization. And so when you execute DIME as an example, the military and economic piece, it's very difficult unless the top leadership synchronizes that effort out of its toolbox. I'd like to turn to Morris for a moment and talk about an intangible. You know, in the domains of any kind of military operations, and actually civilian operations, you've got a physical domain, you've got kind of an organizational or structural domain, and probably more important than all is the moral domain. Hmm. And on the moral domain, I want to ask a question on trust. Because fear, trust, morale, confidence, those are all in the moral domain. And they affect great armies to win or, or, or even an individual in a sports event. So talking about trust, I look back at when we left Vietnam, what we did there. The sacrifices, the wins, the losses, etc. Now look at what happened when we pulled out, maybe prematurely, won't judge in this call, 
but there's a reason why ISIS flooded the zone in Syria and northern Iraq. And with white Toyota pickup trucks chased off Abrams tanks with people we trained. And I look at that fight there with the Kurds and how they held the line, and then what happened after that. Then I look at the recent operation on the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and what comes to mind is that word trust between allies. You fought in these areas in, uh, in Afghanistan, not in Vietnam, of course, your dad did. I fought with my, my dad and I both fought in Vietnam, but I, I remember it still today what happened. What's your feeling on from your time, battalion commander, three, gate commander on uh, the trust issue with Afghanistan or any ally right now because of events like Afghanistan? Any ally? What's your feeling on, on trust with allies? So that's a, a unique question. Um, I'll, I'll start with a with a story real quickly, if I may. I'm a brigade commander. We're in Afghanistan, and I go with my counterpart out to a combat outpost. And so we get there, and I see this one Afghan soldier. He has red tape on the butt of his M16, which I just thought was strange. Two days later, that same guy kills one of my soldiers. Um, and I was furious, um, just furious. So I walk to the chapel. So we do the we do the hero flight. I walk to the chapel and I sit on the front row of the, ch- the pew in the chapel and I sit there so long until I fell asleep and then I wake up. I eventually go see my counterpart and um, I had to t- remind myself that if I allowed that anger to impede my my relations with my counterpart, then we should just you know take our weapons away from each other. Nobody carries any ammunition around. We should stop patrolling together. In fact, we should just probably pack it up and go home. And I actually had a reporter ask me the same question. So I came to the conclusion of I had to trust my counterpart regardless of the cost because he's my counterpart. And if I allowed the action of the enemy to divide me, then then we've lost the fight already, and the enemy actually won. So I, I put my feelings in a sock and buried them and, and kept it moving. Now, I say that to say this. I think soldier-wise, Soldiers are soldiers. They 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 carry the same weight. They understand the same sacrifice. They understand the cost. Um, I think what we have lost is maybe at the national level. Does the does our allies wonder if the government is committed? I think they know that a soldier is committed because we stood. We collectively stood on those um, perimeter walls at the airfield there in Afghanistan, even after suicide um, bomb detonated and and killed a bunch of Marines. Um, We stayed, and we always stay, because that's what soldiers do. So I think it's more of an administration would would be a question, but never the military. I think we have, in some cases, maybe um, caused ourselves to, to fall down somewhat in and people questioning our commitment as a nation, but I don't think they will question the commitment of the individual service men and women across our armed services. Um, I think we're going to have to continue, and maybe the the agreement with the with the Australia, the UK, and the US uh, will help. But we do, and I think back to Major Doug's question earlier: if we move forward and do forward staging, and we continue to do exercises. And we show that during hard times we're committed, then our stock will may increase. Um, but again, nationally, we probably lost some 
some value, but I don't think our military has lost any at all. Perfectly, that answers your question, sir. No, I, I appreciate that. And I, I just think trust is a full, uh, force multiplier. Whether you're sitting across from a commander in the Middle East uh, drinking hot, hot sweet tea on the carpet, <laughs> making a deal, or you're up with another Allied force running to a point in the middle of the night, or you're getting ready to go on an op and your task force is made up of 17 nationalities and you've got to find unity of effort. Trust is so key. And that's why I asked you the question as a combat veteran and someone that commanded at many levels, the importance of that. Uh, you mentioned positional advantage again, and I'd like to go back to Pat for a moment. Um, the, the thing about four deployments is that they are great training opportunities, in particular in certain environments. Could be jungle, could be desert, could be mountains, could be just cold weather, could be uh, just the type of terrain that has rivers and valleys and whatever the case may be. But if you're savvy, you can actually get some pretty good training out of it. But you also show people you're there, and they have a sense of commitment. It could be Team spirit in Korea, it could be Reforger, the old Reforger over in Europe, whatever the case may be. Um, I'd just like real quick a couple comments from Pat on on positional advantage because, Pat, you talked with Ranger Doug about distance a little while ago, reach. And reach is not just distance, but it's also the timing of the ability of that reach. Because um, things happen today very quickly, and it's, OPSEC is tough. So just, Pat, just have at it. Just a couple comments on positional advantage globally. You bet. And, you know, I, I got to go back to the trust uh, because, you know, for all those uh, major exercises and events, you know, we do build trust and confidence in our allies when we show up. And, you know, what I found interesting as we prepared for many of those exercises the real work was the work that was done ahead of time. The event almost became a fait accompli. I mean, it was it was it went as uh, as planned. But it's all the work ahead of time where we built up that trust with our allies that we knew their capabilities and they knew our capabilities, and then we we learned how to optimize those based on the particular challenge the exercise prevented presented us and. That's so true. As, uh, you know, Morris was talking about, uh, you know, building that trust in our allies is so key. And at the soldier level, we've got it in space. I see that all the time. Uh, we always seem to have that connection and that ability to do it. At the strategic level, it's where I think it really gets challenging. And that's the, the work that's done ahead of time. And I, I had to laugh when you talked about sweet tea because I was just like, Oh my gosh, you're taking me back to a time in my life where I had to de drink that tea and I had so many things I wanted to get done, but yet I would, I would drink that tea and know that this meeting wasn't going to get any of that work done. This was just to talk about our relationship and our families and maybe the second or third or the fourth meeting, I'd actually make some headway and some of the things I wanted to get done, whether it was Afghanistan or Pakistan for that matter. So, I think we're. I think 
I would like to think our uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines today are still thinking in that way. And that they're certainly getting the opportunities with the exercises we have. Uh, but, you know, the question will certainly always come at the strategic level. Do we have the political will to do what we'd like to get done? And uh, every four years it changes. And I used to tell people, you know, you may not like, uh, you know, the things that I, I do, and you just got to wait three three years, and there'll be a new commander come along here. Uh, but for now, this is the way we're going to do it. And I think the rest of the world sees that uh, in this country. When uh, the political uh, wind shifts, they've got some questions. Uh, but, again, at the end of the day, we're there. We're there. We're going to be there. I, I really am confident at the end of the day we will see our way through this and nothing unites us more than a, a common cause and I can just hope that that's what we see in any future event that we have. Uh, so Morris uh, last question for you if you would, it's a spectrum of capability. So if you think about use of force and sometimes what I can call, in fact in our training range we, we talk about this way as well for a single police officer or a GI, we call it discriminatory engagement. When do you shoot? When do you don't shoot? Hmm. And you get, you really have that toolbox of the spectrum of capabilities. Now, in the, in the national security strategy, homeland security is a, is a big deal. Hmm. But the active services really don't do much in that regard, except from afar, except for really a standoff capability, presence, whatever. So you do have this homeland security support, and I remember that well from being the director of military support for man-made and natural disasters. The military does a lot more than American people realize. Mm-hmm. Hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, fires, you name it. It's not just the National Guard who does a tremendous job, but it's many, very often augmented by the active force. But look at the other spectrum of capabilities where you have, could be something like information warfare, show of force, like we did initially in the no-fly zones and stuff like that in Iraq before Desert Storm. Peace support operations, both peacekeeping and peace enforcement. Foreign, foreign, foreign internal defense. Counterinsurgency operations. Full war. And God forbid, nuclear war. So on a spectrum of capabilities, you, I know from your bio, participate in several of those use of force options. Where do you feel tied to our subject tonight of force projection versus stay at home? I don't see any of those, I'd like your opinion, being able to be conducted if you just stayed at home except for emergency deployment for strike ops. Comment. Staying at home, you can't do any of those. I mean, obviously, you know, with the exception of I mean, we can provide support to the governors based on a requirement through FEMA. And, you know, as you alluded to, you know, an active duty force goes to support uh, the efforts after Hurricane Katrina so we can do those type of things. But the other um, operations, as you talked, the full spectrum, you can't need the side of the U.S. with the active duty force because uh, I believe it's with Posse Comitatus, you'll be breaking the law. So, um, you know, staying at home it may cost less money. Um, everything may be safe and hunky-dory, which is probably not a doctoral term, um, for the force, and it limits 
um, you know, blowback or contention, but that's not why we exist. I mean, we exist to support national interests. We support, we exist to provide assistance uh, to those in, in, in need. And so, you know, to your point, you know, we, we are there and we should be there to help the Kurds. We should be there to help those that face a tsunami. We, we, are, we should be there to backstop any aggression. I mean, much like, you know, during World War II, at some point you have to stop the aggression at whatever cost. Um, and, and I don't know who made the comment earlier. Uh, there's a cost for not for no decision. And we've always, as Americans, shown up. And so the full spectrum of capabilities, you know, we can, we can train at home station. Obviously, we have the capability to do it. And to Brother Pat's comment, you know, we do have the capability to do exercises as we did from uh, Alaska to Australia when we sent a battalion there and jumped in and did a joint exercise there. But the full spectrum of operations and the full weight and the ability of the American military apparatus um, is best seen when it's forwardly deployed, forwardly executed on a multitude of spectrums, everything from handing out Benny Babies, and I may be dating myself, or um, Jolly Ranchers, um, to uh, you know, kicking somebody's door down and taking some bad person off the planet. So, again, I think in order to to achieve what we are designed to do, um, we need to be able to forward stage bases. We need to have the capability to resupply those bases um, and conduct operations anywhere in the world whenever required in order to protect the homeland. Um, if we stay here, we, we, we've seen what that what has happened. You know, it cost us. We come to the fight sort of kind of late, and we have to spin up the industrial base um, to produce whatever we need. So fully, fully deployed, covering all the full-spectrum capabilities is what keeps our military at the, at the very peak of efficiency, trained for all um, scenarios, at least the majority of the scenarios currently on the table. Um, so I concur we need to be forwardly deployed and exercising all those resources and capabilities to stay trained um, to face whatever threat uh, is out there. Over. Well, thank you. Thank you, Morris, for those comments. Uh, we're going to cut to a commercial break. and we come back, my Ranger buddy, Ranger Doug, is going to summarize our discussion for this evening. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985. 
serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. Here's your host, General Grange. Well, thank you, General Grange. This show has been a real pleasure because, of course, not only are we on the show as we've been before, but my two best friends, uh, wonderful guys from different services who had a lot to say. And we talked about a wide range of issues, uh, the, the show's theme being base at home versus abroad. But we've got to think about what the services are now considering, the DOD is now considering, to be these multi-domain operations. And if we consider the fact that in the past we've always fought the air, land, and maritime dimensions, we've become very good at that. And that's where the enemy is concentrating his attention. But the other domains that are out there that we've got to consider are space, cyberspace, and the human domain. I think that, in fact, as we look at the enemy's anti-access and area denial capability, okay, we can go out and try the air, land, maritime, but we're going to be subject to attack by weapons that may or may not be as good as we're told. In other words, we always overestimate our enemies. We overthink a lot of things, but we can't stand to lose a thousand people in some ship because we decided to sail it, not realizing that the enemy could hit it with a missile as it departs Norfolk. We've got to think about splitting our forces up, placing them in new places, such as perhaps India, Papua New Guinea, Australia, for the, for the uh, Pacific dimension, and where to do things in Europe so that we can not only have basing there, but move forces rapidly in. How do they do that? Where do they base in order to be able to get into a fight somewhere up in the area of, say, Lithuania? Well, the key to all of this is probably understanding the other domains that have not been present in warfare until recently are space, cyberspace, and the human domain. So we have to think about how we can blank out the enemy's space capabilities, how we can use cyber activity not only to wipe out what they do in space, but their communications and other things. And we have to think about the fact the enemy is going to try to do this to us as well. And then finally, it's all about the human cognitive domain. Patton said, you don't just defeat the enemy's equipment. You have to defeat the soul of the enemy man. How do we do that to people that have a, a widely different perception of things than we do? Say, people in certain parts of Europe, people in the Far East. Probably, to me, that involves something that we do to sucker them in to do something that they wouldn't normally do, but they think they've got the ability to do because we've shown a bit of weakness. Kind of like what the killdeer does to draw... Uh, an enemy away from its eggs. We have to show them that they think that they're better than we are in some domain, and in the end, when they strike, we're capable of pouncing. All the while, we've blanked out their capabilities to know what we're really doing. And this actually gets to something interesting. Suppose they're able to blank everything that we do, sophisticated, and we're able to blank everything that they do. We're back to fighting along the lines of what we experienced in the latter stages of the Korean War. So I think one of the things in the human domain that we have to do is address training. Our ships have to sail. They have to be fighting on the open sea without opposition. We have to make sure that our military forces on land are capable of defeating an enemy in any area, any terrain, and that our forces it to become different than we knew in World War II, Korea, Vietnam, 
moves ahead to become that dominant combat force on the ground that we've always been. Finally, our aspect of air power has to not only be able to support the ground and sea forces, but has to defeat the enemy's fearsome anti-access area defense abilities, their A2AD in the form of these new missiles and other systems that uh, the Russians are first developing, but the Chinese are obviously following along with technology they may have borrowed from us, but nonetheless, we still have to figure out how to defeat it. Again, this is our third show, and while we're here at Thanksgiving, and we've talked about that, remember that in our second show, we had a number of aspects that actually reflected on Thanksgiving. First, the World War II POW experience. Our World War II POW Clifton Street was captured during the Battle of the Bulge. The Germans actually focused on our holiday perspective, the period between Thanksgiving and Christmas, to attack and do what they did. In Korea, the Chinese actually thought much about our holidays and our, our preoccupation with them when they made their offensive. And in fact, some of the worst battles occurred right around Thanksgiving in 1950 and beyond. And finally, the Sante Raid, which Terry Buckler so aptly described, was conducted on President Nixon's intent to return the POWs from that camp to the United States before Thanksgiving. We also have our first show where we had a number of things that covered our first uh, 20 years after the 9-11 conflagration, and we had some estimable guests on that show who had deep perspective on a number of things. Eric, Jory Hansen, Andy Anderson, Rick Lamb, Mike Hall, and Trey Sharp. Each gave a valuable perspective on that. Last, we can't forget about our two other shows. That would be Wounded But Not Broken with our host Patrick Scroggin and Roll Call with Kenny DeCamp and Nadine Noki. Each of them occupies different terrain from this show, but the three together give a varying perspective and quite a lush perspective on veterans affairs, military affairs, current events, and other information. want to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. General, over to you. Thank you, uh, Ranger Doug. Appreciate it. I'd like to wrap up tonight with a couple comments and predictions. First of all, uh, this is, we are an outward-focused military. We're organized, we're trained, and we have been directed to do things from afar to protect the United States of America. There's no doubt about it, and we're good at it. However, when you commit to an operation like we covered in the spectrum, by not completing the mission causes tremendous second, third-order effects that will require us to do something about it in the future, if not the immediate future. So I believe, personally, my view, that, the, that of the station, that the U.S. rapid withdrawal and the preparation for that recent departure from Afghanistan will cause some tremendous outcomes. It makes me also think about should it be have been military-led or Department of State-led? I mean, we have the capability to do both. But who was better prepared in that situation? I believe the rapid withdrawal opened the gates of hell. And we will have horrific second, third-order effects from doing it in that manner. Afghanistan itself is in total chaos. It's a crisis. Mass killings, people being thrown out of their villages, homes, pushed into the mountains, 
with no food, experienced exposure with the winter, starvation, migration to other borders, and the void's been filled immediately by numerous terrorist organizations. Al-Qaeda itself, over the last month, has 15,000 new recruits. ISIS has made Afghanistan its new area of operations globally. ISI, ISK, other terrorist organizations are running amok in that country. In fact, the Taliban themselves are having problems from it. But more importantly, it's also created a regional crisis in Central and Southwest Asia. Pakistan is falling apart between the Prime Minister side and the ISI side. And the issue is, besides the humanitarian crisis there, will be it's a nuclear power. So imagine how India feels about that situation. Russia's deployed troops throughout Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. China's moving in to take advantage of the economic opportunities that we left. Iran has pretty much taken over a good portion of southwest Afghanistan with its Quds Force Regiment taken out of Syria. So how do you, we think, and it was touched on tonight by our guests, because of what's happened, our credibility, our trust with allies, the respect of our nation is going to play in the geopolitical arena with what may happen in Taiwan, Ukraine, North Korea, Iran. So I believe that in the next between now and the next six months, uh, there will be some issues that the U.S. military will have to be involved in. That's just my prediction. And I believe some people on the, the show tonight, we talked about some subjects that may lead to that. We'll see. In closing, we're very fortunate to have Thanksgiving. Think about the Afghan families that can barely feed their, their themselves tonight tomorrow uh, because of the crisis they're in currently. So good night. Thank you for being on our show and happy Thanksgiving. Dave out. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of the Veterans Radio Hour. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The Veterans Radio Hour name and all forms and abbreviations are the property of its owner, and its use does not imply endorsement or of opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, and Roll Call. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives.